that this is Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip. Okay? Jonah is called here um, to, am I echoey to anybody else? Can you maybe, I don't know what it would be that would fix that, but do whatever you guys do up there that's magic. Uh, but, but Jonah is, is um, a prophet, okay? Um, also an asparagus, apparently. But Jonah is a prophet, and Jonah's job is to take um, a message from God and deliver it to the people. That's Jonah's chief responsibility as a prophet. Um, and we're going to get into that, and we're going to understand that better as we get into the text today, what exactly that means and what's that like. But, but the thing about it is this. Things don't go the way that Jonah wants them to go. We're going to start with just that reality. Things don't go the way that Jonah wants them to go, and here's the deal. There are days and times and moments in your life where they do not go the way that you want them to go. Um, the reason um, that we went with the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip um, is because you've read that book, right? Alexander. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day where Alexander goes to bed with gum in his mouth and he wakes up with gum in his hair and he trips on the skateboard that he left by the bed and he accidentally drops his sweater in the sink while he's brushing his teeth. And then he goes down to breakfast, and Anthony gets a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick gets a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. And in Alexander's breakfast cereal box, he just gets breakfast cereal. He has to ride in the middle on the way to the carpool, on the way to school. And the teacher doesn't like his picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, he sang too loud. At counting time, he left out 16. Who needs 16 anyway? His mom forgot to put a dessert in his lunchbox. He had to go to the dentist, and he had three cavities. He couldn't get the shoes he wanted at the shoe store. They went to pick up Dad from work, and Dad said, please don't touch my phone, except he accidentally called Australia. <laughs> Lima beans for dinner. He got soap in his eye at bath time. His favorite marble went down the drain. Nick took back the uh, Mickey Mouse pillow that he said he could keep, and the cat wants to sleep with Anthony and not with him, and it's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Here's the deal. There are days that are like that. There are weeks that are like that. There are, um, I'll use the Christian term, there are seasons of your life that are like that, where things just don't go right. They don't go how you intended them to go. And sometimes... Not always, but sometimes the reason that happens is because we've decided that we know better than God. I want to be clear. Sometimes that happens because the world is broken. Sometimes that happens because we live in a broken, sinful world. And so I don't mean to suggest that every time something goes wrong, it's because you've made a mistake in following God. Sometimes things go bad because the world is broken. You get a flat tire on the way home. I am not suggesting it's because you sinned yesterday. You might find another church that might tell you that's true, but that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to you is a result of your sinfulness. Sometimes things fall apart in a world that is, that's broken. But sometimes when things seem to unravel, it's because God has very clearly sent us down a path or in a direction or very clearly put boundaries in place, and we've decided that we don't like it. It's not all that different from the prodigal son that we just finished talking about that ended up in the distant country. 
That was because he wanted to do things God said no to. But sometimes the problem is we don't want to do things God clearly says do. And so here's the truth that I just need you to know as we get started on this. As a Christian, there are going to be moments in your life where God will clearly call you to do something that you don't want to do. It's not a matter of if that happens. It's a matter of when that happens. And I don't know what it will be. I only know that it will be. Right? I can't tell you exactly what it is that God is going to call you to do that you don't want to do. It may be to give up something, to walk away from something that you thought was really awesome. It might be that God calls you to do something that you are afraid to do or that you have distaste for doing. It might be that God tells you to forgive where you absolutely, unequivocally do not want to forgive. It, it might be that God calls you to be generous and you don't feel like you can afford to be. I don't know what it'll be, but I know that it will be. The question, though, when that happens, and this is, this is an object lesson from Jonah, the question for us when that happens is, how will you respond? And I'll add to that even a little bit. Here's the thing. When I ask you, listen, if God wants you to do something hard, how will you respond? Almost all of you that are being serious and not snarky, and that fancy yourself Christians will say, oh, I'll do it. In fact, let's play this game. It'll be fun. Um, if God asks you to do something hard, raise your hand if you think you'll go ahead and do it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Sermon over. Prayer meeting started. <laughs> let's try again. If God asks you to do something hard, Christians followers of Christ who have committed your lives to him, how many of you think you would go ahead and, even though it's hard, do it? There you go. Man, if you're listening online later, like nobody raised their hand the first time. And it made my heart sad. But I bounced. Anyway, so here's the deal. We all think maybe, that when something hard happens, when God says do something hard, that we're all like, yeah, I'm in, right? When, when God said, hey, Matt, be a pastor, that was hard. It was hard for me. You know who it was really hard for? It was hard for Carrie. It's hard for the kids, right? Because the kids didn't understand that anything. I say to the kids, look, I've got a call in my life that, that God wants me to go serve as a pastor. And they're like, well, that's fine. That's great. Hey, that call is going to take us away from our school and our home and our neighborhood and your friends. Oh, time out. That's, God didn't put that call in my life. What are you doing to me? And so what happens is God will ask us to do hard, and we always think, yeah, I'm in. When God wants, I'll go where God wants me to go. I'll do what God wants me to do. There I am. Here I am. Send me. I'll do it. The problem is most of us aren't actively preparing for the moment that that happens. And so here's my question. One is, when it happens, how will you respond? And two, in what way are you preparing yourself for when it happens? See, because one of the things that happens is, is when God gives you something hard, and it's more than you think you can handle. It's more than you think you want to do. There is a, a strong, um, visceral reaction to, to what God is putting in front of you, and there is, this, there is this very clear hesitance to go where he says to go. If you haven't been actively preparing to hear from God and to do the hard things that he asks you to do, you're going to fail. It's like the people that will say, no matter what, oh yeah, I, I, I would die for God in a heartbeat. Like getting up and being at church by 9.30, now that's a stretch. 
but I would die for him for sure. Like, oh, of course, if God called me to be a missionary, I would go overseas and I would be a missionary. Oh, but I was too tired to do Bible study tonight. Like, it, it doesn't add up. And so part of what you have to do is you have to be preparing for these hard things. Okay, but God is going to ask you to do hard things. They're not going to be necessarily what you want them to be, but it's the call that God puts on your life. And that's what we see in the book of Jonah. Okay, Jonah is just four chapters. It's a prophetic book um, towards the end of the Old Testament. Okay, and we're going to talk about when and and how it happens here in a little bit. But um, in the book of Jonah, Jonah is asked to do something that he finds distasteful, disgusting, visceral. Here's what it is. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and instead headed for Tarshish. And if you don't know this, and I don't know why you would unless you really study Old Testament maps, Tarshish Tarshish is a port city that is the opposite direction of Nineveh. So God, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for the opposite direction. So that's, that's how we start um, Jonah's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip. Okay? But before we get too far, I, I want to walk through this with you a little bit about what's happening and, and who Jonah is and how Jonah works. So I'm going to give you a little background. It's more background than we normally do when we start a sermon series. But I think for those of you that have grown up in the church, this may be um, just something you're like, oh, I get it. This is just what it is. But if you're new to church or you're like me and when you were in church as a kid, you didn't pay very good attention then this will be helpful to understand who Jonah is, what his role is, and what's happening in the world when Jonah steps on stage. And to do that, we have to start, I know this, this is going to, we're going to start at the beginning. In the beginning, we're going we're gonna to treat this front of the stage like it's a timeline. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he creates mankind and it's good. Sin is not in the world. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. Together, they perfectly complement his image the way that he designed. But then shortly after, there is a very real event where sin enters the world. We know it as the fall. Sin enters the world and the world becomes broken. That's why sometimes you get flat tires on the way home from work. It just happens. Sin enters the world, the world is broken. And because the world is broken, in the story of man, we go from broken to downright detestable in no time. And we get to Genesis 6, and in Genesis 6, God says something that, that makes, should make our hearts shudder. He says, I'm grieved that I made them. Because their sin is so bad, and they have become so evil and wicked And so what God's doing in this moment is he is drawing a barrier. It's this idea that God says, I am righteous, I will not tolerate sinfulness. I am holy, I will not tolerate unholiness. And God says, it is my, not just my right, but it is my have to, it is my responsibility as a perfect creator to judge sin harshly. And so God sends the flood. And it... Some of you have heard me, you know, um, lament this before, but how this massive flood, the time of Noah, how this massive flood becomes like, hey, let's decorate our children's rooms that way. Come on, don't, don't lie. Who, who decorated their nursery with Noah? 
Yeah, death. Destruction. Drown them all on the wall in my baby's room. It's great. But here's what happens. So if, if, if you did that and your kids are tormented, that's on you. Okay? But here's what happens. God draws this line. And he says, this is, this is, listen, I cannot tolerate sinfulness. And this is what justice looks like. Sin must die. But he, he, he has graciousness on, on humanity and he uses Noah to spare um, and, and to reboot. And what happens through the person of Noah is that we get to this point where all of a sudden, that was Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, it's happened again. Sin has entered the world again and it's now detestable to God again. But this time he says, I'm gonna show them something else. I showed them why I can't tolerate sin. And I showed them what has to happen with sin. It has to be wiped out completely. Now I'm going to show them another plan. And this plan that he's going to show them is centuries and centuries and centuries in the making. Okay, what happens is first he scatters the nations in Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, he calls an individual. His name is Abram. We know his, him as Abraham. He calls Abraham to himself and he says, Abraham, I want you to get up and I want you to follow me. And I want you to devote yourself to me. And I'm going to take you as an individual, you and your wife, and I'm going to turn you in to a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And so he sets in motion. Here, he draws this dividing line. I can't tolerate sin. Sin must die. Here, he says, but I'm going to show you how good I am and how gracious I am. And I'm going to do it a different way. And so he calls Abraham and he sets up Abraham. And through Abraham, um, he sets up a, uh, a system so that we can make sacrifices and we can be right with God of the universe, that we can have our sins forgiven and cleansed for a moment. And so generations go from Abraham, and next thing you know, we find that this one individual is now millions of individuals in the nation of Israel, and they're in bondage in Egypt. And they cry out to God, and God hears them, and he sends Moses. And, and you know the story in the beginning of Exodus. Moses brings the plagues. Um, God brings them through Moses, and, and Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go. And so all of the Israelites, this special nation, starts to leave Egypt, and, and they're on their way to the land that God promised them. And they, they make a pit stop along the way at Mount Sinai. And when they get to the mountain, here's what happens. They get to the mountain, here's what happens. God gives them law. He says, hey, you're my nation. I'm giving you law. And he gives them three kinds of laws. He gives them ceremonial law, religious law. If you want to worship, this is how you worship. He gives them civil law. In a civilized Israel, this is how we treat one another. And then he gives them moral law. If you're going to be moral, you're going to follow these things. And he gives them the law. And, and then... Um, they enter the land, Moses dies, Joshua comes on, they enter the promised land, they, they establish themselves in the promised land, and then if you're reading through your Old Testament, they get to this time called the Judges. And the Judges is significant because what it says is there's no king in the land, they're supposed to follow God, that's what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to follow the God of the universe, and what happens is everybody during that time does what is right in their own eyes. So they're all very moral, but get this, their standard of morality is what their heart thinks up. That's one of the, that's one of the problems we have with the world today. You're never going to find somebody that we think is immoral that will agree, yes, I am immoral. No, they'll say they're very moral. They just get to write their own standard. And that's what happened in Israel, and so it was the time of the judges, and God brought punishment and things, because here's part of the promise that they made. Look at Deuteronomy 28. This is part of the Mosaic Covenant. 
God says this to the people through Moses, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all of his commandments that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all of these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. And then it lists blessing after blessing after blessing. If, if you fully obey, I will bless. Skip ahead later in the chapter. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and you do not obey all the commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come and overwhelm you. And then God lists all of the curses. And when we get to the time of Judges, when everybody is doing their own thing, nobody is following the commands that God's given. And so they enter into this season of curses where other nations come against them and there's famine and there's problems and all of these things happen. And so the reality there is that God is allowing these things because they have not followed his covenant. That's the way that it works. Finally, there's a person called Samuel. He's a judge. He comes in and he settles things and he makes it all right. Everything is working the way that it should. People are following God. The nation is being blessed again. Samuel's about to retire. And so he's going to let his two sons take over. And his two sons are gross. They're corrupt and they're wicked. And so the people say, enough of this. We want a king. So we'll be like every other nation. God didn't want them to have a king yet. They were supposed to be following God, not a king. But God says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And then we enter into this time where the nation is united. We have a united Israel, all together under one king. Then kings get stupid, and they do stupid, and all of a sudden we have a divided nation where we have this separation. Okay, where now we have 10 northern tribes of Israel. And by the way, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, they're gross. They're always gross. They never follow God. And then we have the two southern kingdoms that's called Judah, and sometimes they do what they're supposed to do. And because these 10 never do what they're supposed to do, eventually God wipes them out completely. So the 10 northern tribes will cease to exist at some point in the future because God doesn't allow them to continue. Now, the reason I have to give you that history lesson is so you can understand what the prophets do. Because of this covenant, if you do right, I'll bless you. If you do wrong, there will be curses. The prophets' jobs, prophets in, in the Old Testament, you, you read through, just you've got the books of history, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get into the historical books, and, and, and that's um, that's the books where they enter the land. It's the kings and chronicles and Samuel as they have kingdoms and established. Then you get poetry, you get Job, Psalms, Proverbs, some of those things, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And then you get to prophets. Prophets are books that are written. And so this is not a chronological story when you, when you read the prophets. They happen at different times on the timeline. And what happens is you're reading the prophets. They are people that God has chosen, like Jonah, that will step in and they will tell you based on Deuteronomy 28, hey, you're doing it wrong. If you keep doing it wrong, curses are coming, brother. Curses are coming, sister. If you keep doing it wrong, bad is going to happen, and bad is going to happen because you know better. Bad is going to happen because God has laid this out so clearly, and you are doing the wrong thing. And then the prophets oftentimes also will say, but there's a day coming when if you do it right, God will bring blessings and it's this great and glorious day of the Lord, and, and, and God will bless you abundantly. And so the prophet's job is to tell the people the truth 
about what's happening. You can imagine that a prophet's job was unpopular because a prophet would oftentimes have to stand in front of people and have to tell them, you are disobeying the God of the universe and he is going to destroy you for it. I don't know if you guys took public speaking and persuasive argument in college, but that is not the way to go if you're trying to win over a crowd. You are not to stand in front of them and tell them that they're stupid and that they're doing it wrong and that God is going to wipe them out. It's not the way you want to approach it, but yet that's exactly what God says to do. That's exactly what God calls the prophets to do. And we get to Jonah. And Jonah, as a prophet, has a very specific job. He writes this during the divided kingdom, okay? So the kingdom now is separated between Judah and Israel, okay? Um, And it focuses on Nineveh, which is soon to be the Assyrian capital. Assyria, in case you didn't know, bad guys. Bad guys. And Nineveh is going to be, it's not quite yet, it's going to be their capital city. See, this was written in about 785 B.C., So if we look ahead 63 years from when Jonah writes this letter, the Assyrians are the ones that wipe out Israel. When God says, if you listen, I will bless you. If you don't listen, there will be curses. One of those curses is the Assyrian empire and it wipes out Israel. And they're evil, evil people. But God calls Jonah to go and preach against them. In 785, and, and uh, that next phrase is completely backwards. I put it up there so I could remind myself that I'm not as smart as I think I am. It's supposed to say that it's unique because it focuses more. The book of Jonah is unique because it focuses more on the prophet than it does on the prophecy. In the story of Jonah, what's most important is the prophet. That's why the story happens. That's what we're supposed to know. And the other thing about Jonah that I want you to know is that it's true. A lot of times we think of Jonah as a fable or as a parable. We just got done with the parable about the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son was not a real story. It was a made-up story. Jesus makes it up to teach a lesson. Jonah, even though it's fanciful, even though Jonah is going to, spoiler alert, if you didn't know, he's going to get swallowed by a big fish, most likely a whale. It's real. Right? We have a tendency to think something that's supernatural and fanciful that it can't possibly be real, but it's real. It's a legitimate story. Jesus refers to it as a legitimate thing in Matthew 12. And I'm not about to argue with Jesus. Okay, so that's the background you need to know. That's a lot, like I said, but I think it's important to help us understand what's happening with Jonah. It's going to drive us through these next six weeks. So, Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, some of Amittai. Now, Two things. I don't know if that actually is Amittai. But if you're ever reading the Bible or you're preaching, just say it with confidence. Nobody else knows either. They can't argue with you. They don't know, right? There's nobody sitting there that knows Hebrew well enough to say, well, actually, Matt, I think you're supposed to. No, right? So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And so one of the things we have to understand is that all of this, the entire book of Jonah, the entire prophecy, it's all predicated on this one idea of the word of the Lord. And what exactly is the word of the Lord? What does that mean? And how does it work? And, and why should we trust the word of the Lord? Because if somebody comes to me 
In fact, I just had this conversation with my mother-in-law not too long ago. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, I have this knowledge of God, this word of the Lord that's come to me. I'm the only one that knows it. Trust me when I tell you that it's true. I'm going to say, cuckoo, heretic, go away. I don't want to hear you. Because I don't trust, and you should not trust either, secret knowledge that comes to an individual, and then they say, hey, trust me, this is now true. You don't want any part of that. God doesn't operate that way anymore. Okay, so we have to be really careful about this. So um, now, it doesn't mean this. I've had people, well-meaning, well-intentioned people, come to me and say, hey, hey, Matt, um, God gave me a word to share with you. Okay, great, that's fine, absolutely. That means God put something on your heart that, that is for me to know and understand. But when somebody comes to me and says, hey, 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 Pastor Matt, I've got, you know, God gave me a word to share with you. If that word starts to contradict something in the Bible, I want nothing to do with it because God is not going to share a word with somebody to give me that's going to contradict. And I don't even necessarily always trust the words that people have for me. I've had the experience where somebody has said, hey, Pastor Matt, I've got a word for you. God wants me to tell you this. And they've told me and it's been spot on. I'm like, yes, my heart needed that. My soul needed that. And I've had experiences where people have said, hey, hey, Pastor Matt, I have a word that I think God wants me to share with you. And they've told me, and I'm like, that is the wrongest thing ever. Like my God's smarter than that and he knows better. So, I mean, I've had both of those experiences where the word is exactly right and, and other times where it's not even close, but it never contradicts God's word. Okay, but we don't do secret knowledge anymore. And so I, I, I have to pause here. Um, if, if you spend any time at all on YouTube, you can find Christian, in air quotes, prophets who will be giving you new and secret revelations from the Lord. And through some fanciful things, they'll figure out how it's tied and how it can be understood and, and this and that. No, listen, we don't get secret knowledge anymore. You know what gets secret knowledge? Colts get secret knowledge. You know, we have the, the entire um, Mormon church that was built on a secret revelation that says, hey, by the way, we've been getting the Bible wrong. Let's do it this way from now on. And so we have, we have whole religious systems of people that are without intervention on their way to hell because they've believed secret knowledge. Islam. I got secret knowledge from, from Allah. So now you have to believe me and we have to go this direction. So we have to be really careful about secret knowledge. But we, we go back um, to the Old Testament and it was not uncommon for God to show um, or give the word of the Lord to his prophets. And there were, there were things that had to happen for someone to be considered an accurate prophet. See, there were prophets all over the Old Testament, and, and some of them were godly, and some of them were fake. Um, they were uh, being influenced not by God, but by Satan. And one of the things that God says, and he gives us this standard in his word, one of the things that helps us understand who was a legitimate prophet of God and who was not is whether or not their prophecies were legitimate and whether or not the things that were prophesied actually came true. And so there were, there were several prophets who would make predictions and, and they would not work that way and we would know that's not a legitimate prophet. Other prophecies would be accurate and we would say, okay, that's someone that God is clearly communicating with. 
And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. See, we have the word of the Lord for us. I, I just, I want to beat, I know you're like, man, he's really beating that to death. Yes, I know I am. Uh, we have the word of the Lord. It's this. You don't need secret knowledge from anybody else. Now, you need preaching. You need teaching. You need prophetic encouragement. You need all of those things. What you do not need is secret knowledge. This is closed. If someone tells you they have a word for you that's on par with this, that is something that you should consider as important as this, you should dismiss them and you should be done with that. This is the word of God to us. This is what God wants us to have and know and understand and breathe. And um, it is, in case you're not sure what we think about the Bible, it is God's word. It is inerrant. It is perfect. It is everything we need it to be. It is instructive for teaching and correcting and rebuking and encouragement. It gives us life. Okay? That's why this is something we spend time in and we think about and we pray over and we meditate on and we memorize because it's so good. But here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the word of the Lord would come to Old Testament prophets, and the word of the Lord would come to them in various ways, and we always want to know what it is. Did they hear this voice of God? We have several instances in Scripture where that happens. Daniel hears that. Paul, on the road to Damascus, hears the voice of God. It sounds like thunder, and, and, and it terrifies everybody else, but Paul understands it as God's voice. Is it, is it a vision? We have that in scripture too. We see Isaiah is caught up um, in Isaiah 6 and he, and he says, I, I see the Lord sitting on his throne and the train of his road and fills the temple and he has this vision. He's caught up in this vision. Paul talks about being caught up in a vision. John's entire revelation is a vision that we have. Okay, so we have all of that that's happening in scripture. So the word of the Lord could come that way. It also could just be this burning conviction in the heart of the prophet that he just knows is from God. But whatever it is, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And here's the deal about the word of the Lord. When the, Lord, when the word of the Lord is revealed, action is expected. See, God didn't talk to Jonah because Jonah was lonely. God didn't talk to Jonah because God was lonely. God talked to Jonah very specifically because God expected Jonah to act. When the word of the Lord is given, action is expected. And it's not just action from Jonah, but it's a chain reaction. See, what happens is we think about the prophet here as uh, Vince and I, we, we racked our brains um, this week trying to come up with the best analogy for this. And we had a lot of good ones that I don't know that they were good, but they were fun, right? But the best one we could come up with was this. For, for the best analogy for understanding how this works is, and, and why it requires action, is a quarterback. Okay, so you get the quarterback who, who stands out when the play is, is over and they're getting ready to call the next play. The team gets in a huddle and the quarterback kind of stands over here and watches the sideline. You know, he's trying to listen through his microphone and uh, his headset. And what happens is he gets the play from the coach, Right? It's the word from the coach. It's a little blasphemous, I know, but it's okay. Um, but the word comes from the coach. But it's not good enough just to have it. Like, oh man, I feel so good that I heard from the coach. But what happens is he has to then take that, action is expected, and he has to disseminate it to all the players in the huddle. So they gather around and he says, hey, I heard from the coach, this is the play that we're going to run. 
Okay, but that's not even good enough. Right? If that's all that happens, it's a woeful failure. But what happens is then the players go line up and they execute the play that was communicated by the quarterback that was received from the coach. And so what happens is in, in this prophecy, the way that this is expected, and it's the way it still works today, except the word of the Lord, remember, is different. But God communicates, it's given, and then the people are expected to respond. We have that today. It's just that the word of the Lord comes here. And so either in your private time you hear it or on a Sunday morning you hear it. But hearing it is great, but hearing it is not enough. See, if, if you're one of those people and you come every Sunday and you're like, wow, that was really long and boring today. Or wow, man, that was really good today. Or whatever it is that you feel when you leave, but you never do anything because of it. It never does anything. Your life never changes. You never put any of it into practice. Then you're like the team that gets the play, and they're like, that's cool. Man, that's a lot to think about. I took some good notes on that play. I wrote down some stuff. I'm going to think about it. And then they never do anything. Because when the word of the Lord is given, action is expected. And so this starts with Jonah is expected to act. And here's the word. He was given the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord says, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So preach against it would mean that Jonah was to go into this city of evil, terrible people. By the way, here's how bad they were. Nahum, about 120 years later, says this about Nineveh. They plot against God. They exploit the helpless. They're cruel in war. They're guilty of idolatry, prostitution, prostitution, and witchcraft. So it's those people that God says, hey, go there to that great city, the enemies of Israel. Go into that great city and preach against them because their wickedness has come up before me. So basically what God said is, I have... Um, I, I, I am well familiar with their wickedness. I'm sick of it. And I'm about to bring punishment. So Jonah, you go tell them. Now, you think that sounds like a great job? Like, go tell these really cruel, evil people, hey, you're really cruel and evil, and God's going to punish you for it. What do you suppose would happen to Jonah in that scenario? It's not pretty. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah Jonah is expected to act, and Jonah is to go to the great city of Nineveh and tell them that they are terrible, wicked, awful people, and that punishment is coming. And then we see how Jonah responds. Oh, my goodness. Jonah ran away. Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard, sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the, the reason that's important and that we need to linger there for just a second is because I need you to know this. Jonah didn't do this accidentally. See, sometimes when you wander away, when you disobey God, sometimes you want us to believe that you got there accidentally. Like, oh, I, I, you know, I, I meant to do what God wanted me to do, but then I just, I, somehow I got stuck. This is Jonah making a very purposeful decision. Look, um, he ran away from the Lord. He headed to Tarshish, but to get to Tarshish, he had to first go to Joppa so he could catch a boat. And he had to stop and he had to get money and resources so he could pay the fare. 
So, I mean, Jonah is making a very intentional decision to act. He's just acting in the wrong direction. And it's weird because Jonah knows God intimately. See, sometimes, and this is, Christian, I need you to hear this, and I need you to wrap your head around this, because here's what happens sometimes. We think that messages like this or sermons like this, they're for, un, they're, they're for not Christians that need to start to understand God better. That is not the point of this at all. The point of this, what's happening here, is this is for somebody that knows God intimately. He and God are tight. We understand Jonah, if he's receiving messages from the Lord, it is because he and God are on the same page, and they are together. And then all of a sudden, this man of God who knows God well says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing it. And so we got to be really careful. we got to understand that this is not always about, oh, well, I just wish those not-Christians were here so they could hear this. I, I, boy, I really hope that it gets in their heart. No, no, this is for you, man. This is for you, because what happens is, Jonah, a man of God who is intimate with God because he doesn't want to, says, I don't have to. And he probably justifies it with, God, I've done a lot for you. God, you and I have been tight. I've done a lot of things for you. I don't have to do this one to be okay with you. Like, we do that as Christians all the time, right? We give ourselves passes. Like, you know what? I'm really trying to grow. I know I gossip a lot, but that's the only... So I'm going to ignore that one, but I'm really trying to grow here. Or like, I'm really doing well. I know I'm not generous with the resources God's given me at all, but everything else, I'm really trying to move this way. Or I'm showing up at church, I'm doing Bible study. Yeah, I'm sleeping with that person I'm not married to, but it doesn't matter. I'm still doing all this right. And we like to make excuses, like we're doing well enough. But but Jonah is doing well enough. He isn't a man of God, intimate with God, and he's like, yep, I'm not doing it, and everything is going to fall apart for him. And if we didn't know the story of Jonah at all, and we didn't understand what was happening, we would say, okay, well, we get it, right? Though Jonah's not going because he's what? Because he's scared. Those are evil, terrible people. He's not going because he's afraid. It's actually not true. See, Jonah doesn't go for a different reason, and it's not because he's afraid. And this is going to set the stage for everything we do from here on in this series. But Jonah doesn't go. Look later. We'll skip ahead to Jonah 4. Verses 1 and 2. What happens, I'm going to go ahead and give you the ending. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches. They repent. So God spares them from calamity. Right? I I just ruined the rest of the series for you. It's going to be okay, I promise. You could read ahead on your own. You know, it's in the Bible. doesn't matter. So here, or you could watch Veggie Tales. Um, Jonah preaches. They repent. And God spares them. And then Jonah throws a tantrum. This is what he says. Jonah um, seemed, to him, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry, angry with God. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Before I ran away, before all this happened, isn't this what I said? That's why I tried to skip Tarshish, or, or skip Nineveh. That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, so you got to wrap your head around this. Like we were all feeling for Jonah a minute ago because a minute ago we thought, well, Jonah's not going to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he's scared to go to Nineveh. We're like, we get that. But now Jonah's saying, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I want those sinners dead and I want them in hell. This man of God 
intimate with God is saying to God, I didn't want to go talk to them because I knew you were going to be nice to them. They don't deserve it. They should be in hell. They should be destroyed and consumed and they should deal with destruction and all of that because I don't like them. And all of a sudden, I feel a little less sympathetic for Jonah. But we act like that a little bit. I mean, this would be like us saying, hey, I want you to go to Syria and I want you to preach to radical extremists. Tell them that they're radical and they're extreme and God's going to judge them if they don't stop. And you're like, I'm out, man. But this is what God calls Jonah to do. And Jonah knows exactly. See, Jonah knew exactly what was going to happen. Jonah knew exactly what was going to happen because he knows God and he knows the power of God's word. And he didn't want them to receive grace and mercy. Nobody here is going to go to that extreme, I hope. Like, nobody here is going to say, like I've said in my very immature, stupid moments, I'll confess this to you, when I was younger and dumb, I'm older and dumb now, but when I was younger and dumber, I would use the phrase, go to hell. I would say it freely and flippantly. I think in one of my worst moments, I may have said that to my wife. (laughs) Do I really... I mean, do you really understand what that is? What I'm saying there? I didn't. I certainly didn't understand what I was saying. Uh, and I'm, I'm more mature and I'm smarter and, and hopefully I'm more and more like Jesus than I was then. Um, but we may not say those words to people, but do our actions? I think sometimes our actions say, we don't, I don't care if you're in hell because I'm not going to break a sweat bringing you mercy. I'm not going to break a sweat bringing you grace. I'm not even sure I want you in my church sometimes, much less me going out to you. I, like, we got to be really careful about this. And so um, because Jonah knows God and he knows the power of God's word, there is this thing. But here's, here's the interesting thing, and I want to deal with this quickly. Um, here's the interesting thing. One of the things I hear most often, it's one of the big objections, and, and Jonah actually kind of smacks it in the face, body slams it, says that's a stupid objection, right? We wouldn't say that to people, but we can know that their objection when they say it, it comes from the heart and it comes from a place of confusion, but it doesn't hold water. Jonah proves that it doesn't hold water. The objection we hear is this, isn't the God of the Old Testament angry and violent? Isn't the God of the Old Testament angry and violent? I mean, he wipes out nations. He he orders nations to be destroyed. Isn't he angry and violent? And we would have assumed that's where Jonah was going, and that's why Jonah didn't want to go, because he but but Jonah, he knew that God's mercy was so pervasive that if the word of God was preached there, that repentance would most likely happen. That's why he didn't want it to go there. So the God of the Old Testament is not angry and violent. The God of the Old Testament is the same God that we serve now. And he is, look at this, he is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. The God of the Old Testament is gracious and kind. 
is not angry and violent. Our nations in the Old Testament destroyed. Absolutely. Nineveh will ultimately be destroyed. When Jonah preaches to Nineveh, they'll repent and God will spare them the calamity that he said. But in about 120 years, Nineveh will become evil again. And this time, God will bring his judgment in full on that city. But the idea that God is itching to get them, it is unequivocally false. And sometimes we, we read and we wonder, well, why didn't God, as we read the Old Testament, we're like, well, why didn't God give them a chance? Why didn't he talk to them first? Why didn't he call them to repent like he did Nineveh? He did. He does. What you have to remember is what you have in front of you in Scripture is you have God's story, right? It's the story of the creation of everything, but then it's a very specific story of the call of Israel and the way that God is working for redemption, and the way that God is working to redeem people through the nation of Israel and now people through the person of Jesus Christ. It is not the history of the entire world. There are a lot of things that happen that aren't in the Bible. There are a lot of people like Jonah who would have traveled to places like Nineveh to say, God wants you to stop it. God is not out to destroy. And sometimes that's what people think about the church. And so this is the place that I want to end today as, we, as we'll get ready to finish the series. But the church's job, listen, the church isn't out to get you. The church isn't out to be mean to you. The church isn't out to point out things and make you feel bad about yourself. But the church has a very specific job to do. I, as your pastor, have a very specific job to do. And I do it because I love you like crazy. My job, the church's job, is to point out your sin or the sin of the city of Vinton. Not because we like to make you feel bad. Not because I want to pretend that I'm better than you because I've had people point out my sin and I'm convinced that it's because they love me. See, because if Jonah loved Nineveh, he would have been happy to go point out their sin because he knew what God's response would be if they repented would be that they would be saved. See, some of you are so concerned with offending people. You are so concerned with maybe ruining a relationship here on earth. Some of you are so concerned that you don't want to talk about religion. We're like, well, you know what? That's, I'm going to keep that private. I'm not going to bring it up at dinner. I'm not going to go tell my neighbor that I love him and invite him to church. I'm not going to do any of that because I don't want to cause problems between me and my neighbor. Bless you. But the reality is that it's your job as a Christian, just like it's my job as a pastor. It's my job as a pastor to point out areas in your life that don't work. It is not my job as a pastor to embarrass you. It is not my job as a pastor to call you out personally in front of everybody else. You'll notice that if I call out anybody, it's me. Because I hope that that example might be able to speak to you. But it's not my job as a pastor to embarrass you. It's my job as a pastor to point out discrepancies between what God says is right and what you do. And that prophecy requires action. That's why God does it. See, Henry Blackaby calls this the crisis of belief. If you believe, this is the way it works, if you believe that God is good, and if you believe that God is right, and if someone like me, like your small group, like your neighbor that knocks on your door, if someone points out to you that you're living in a way that isn't okay, 
you get to this point where you have a crisis of belief. Do I really believe that God is good? And do I really believe that God is right? Because if I really believe that God is good and believe that God is right, then I better act. If I don't act, then it must mean that I don't believe that God is good, and it must mean that I don't believe that God is right. It's this crisis of belief where the pressure is put on you from the preaching, from the prophecy, from the word of God, the pressure is put on people to decide, do I really believe that or not? And there are all kinds of people that sit in churches that when the push comes to shove, they just really don't. And there are all kinds of people that come to church, that sit in churches when push comes to shove, it changes everything. So we're going we're gonna to get into this series, and we're going to track through Jonah's bad decision, and then we're going to track how God shows him redemption as a little picture of the big redemption that he offers, and it's going to be, I think, a lot of fun as we, as we do that. But for this, I just want to start here. Do you really believe what God says? If you really believe what God says— if you really believe that God is right, if you're here and you're not sure, okay, then you're not sure. We need to explore that further. But if in your heart you really believe what God says and you really believe that God is true and you really believe that God is real, then it's time for you to wrestle with whether or not you're willing to do what he says because it makes no logical sense to say, I believe that the God of the universe is right. I believe that the Bible is right, but I believe I can do whatever I want. It doesn't work. Okay? Okay. 